it is the lifestyle is you don't answer to anybody you're your own boss you work when you want to you don't work when you don't want to you're making money with no strings attached and for me that's that right there is a lot uh, every day is my own you know i make all decisions sometimes it's tough making a decision what i want to do uh, but but I'd think about it for a while, and then I, you know, I'd come up with a decision. It's like coming to a fork in the road. Which way do I go? Yeah. Do I want to go to Vegas or do I want to go to Reno? Or should I go to Laughlin? Maybe I'll go to Tahoe. You know, I was making money in all those spots. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode seven. Two Hustlers. Most people know the saying that if you sit at a poker table and after 10 minutes you can't identify the sucker, get up. You're the sucker. Maybe there's a corollary to this rule for the other games in the casino. If you sit down at a slot machine or baccarat or roulette, and you don't know what your unfair advantage is, then you're the sucker. I should say, we're the suckers. We're paying the bills. We keep the water in the Bellagio fountains. We foot the light bill for the Luxor Pyramid. We sponsor the cover bands on Fremont Street. We even pay for the suntan lotion smell at Mandalay Bay. But we're also paying the salary of advantage players, the people that win at casino games, because our dumb action makes it possible. Sometimes that happens directly, Like when we play a slot machine just until it enters a profitable state, then we get up and leave the game for a pro to vulture. But sometimes we're indirectly supporting advantage players. Like when we play video poker so badly that casinos have to set the machine payouts at levels pros can exploit. This episode is about two pros that made a living playing these games. Bob Dancer started playing video poker with $6,000. And a few years later, he was a millionaire. Mickey Krim made a career playing video poker and hustling slots. But they weren't born winners. They started out losing like the rest of us and only found their edges later in life. In fact, when Mickey Krim found advantage slots, his list of assets wasn't much longer than a sleeping bag, a backpack, and less than a dollar in loose change. The poker games that I could beat, I started out in the early 90s trying to beat low-limit poker games. And there was only a few games I could find around the western states that I could beat. And those games had dried up. So I was back broke again, living out of, um, living out of a sleeping bag and a, and a day pack, you know, like a kid carries books to school and I always traveled light. And I was coming down from Washington because it was in October. The weather changed. When you're living out of a sleeping bag, you have to travel with the seasons. You don't want to be caught where it's too hot. You don't want to be caught where it's too cold. Well, it's, it's in mid-October, and I'm coming down on, out of Washington to Oregon. I get to the Siskiyou's, which is on the California border, run into a big snowstorm, but I got through there. Then I get down to uh, Lodi, California, the big rainstorm. It rained for like two days. I had, I had to hole up in the fast food restaurants and McDonald's drinking coffee all day waiting for the rain to break. And um, and then from there, I made it on down to Tehachapi. My route to Hitchhike, and I, I, I knew the route well because I started thumbing it back in the 70s. Coming from the north, I-5 to Sacramento, 99 down to Bakersfield. 
58 up over to Barstow and then I-15 up to Las Vegas. Well, I made it on the 58 and I made it to Tehachapi and, and that night and uh, I rolled my sleeping bag out in the cloverleaf of the freeway, the on-ramp. There's never anybody out there at, on the cloverleaf on the freeways. Uh, you know, it's a very safe place to, to sleep. And I woke up the next morning, uh, went up to the convenience store, went and went in the restroom, took a whore bath, and came out and got a cup of coffee, and um, went back out to the on-ramp of the freeway, and I was out of folding money, uh, and I counted up the change in my pocket. I had 99 cents, but, you know, I figured, well, just a couple more rides, and I'm going to be in Las Vegas, and I can hustle the credits on the machines, which I already, I had learned how to do it a few years before then, and it's, it's about the equivalent of having a minimum wage job, of uh, walking around slot cruising looking for abandoned credits on machines. Um, meager living at best, but it, it beat being flat broke. But I didn't know it. See, that day that, that day changed my whole life, the way, the way things unfolded. You know, I'm coming to Vegas, but a guy stopped in a van, picked me up, and he says he's going to Laughlin. Well, the first thing that popped in my head is Laughlin. There's, I know there's a lot of casinos there. They got machines. One ride, and I'm, at least I'm hustling credits. So I took the ride, and the guy dropped me off above Harris. I walked out to stash my gear in the desert because you don't want to walk through casinos with camping gear. You know, you stick out like a sore thumb. Mickey made it to Laughlin with modest economic prospects, but he quickly found his first advantage, a slot machine called piggy banking. Anyways, I get down in Harris, and after about an hour, I'm, I'm up. I got like $5 in my pocket. And I notice uh, another guy hustling credits, and so I struck up a conversation with him. And uh, he was a uh, he was in he was in on a junket, and he had one more day to go. And he, he had busted out playing blackjack, and he told me that some local taught him how to hustle the credits. And then, just as an afterthought, he said, uh, and he showed me the pigs too. And I said, the pigs? What are the pigs? And he said, those are some machines the locals are beating. So I go, uh, can you show them to me? And we were on the non-smoking side of Harris. He marched me over to the uh, the smoking side, almost to the bar, back by the sports book. And he pointed out to machines. There was six piggy banking machines, quarter machines on one side, and six dollar machines. And I immediately noticed these tourists are playing this machine. And there's a couple of guys that are sitting back uh, on some machines just watching these tourists play this bank of piggy banking machines. You know, they're just really concentrating on what these people are doing. And I'm thinking, well, these guys know something. You know, there's something up there. So I told the um, the other credit hustler, I go, well, thanks for showing to me. And uh, I took off and made a lap around the casino. You know, I shook him off. Then I came back and I watched what was going on. And every once in a while, a tourist would walk off from the machine. And one of these guys would get up and go play the machine. Well, I'm, I'm looking at what's going on. He's piggy banking machines they had a uh, piggy bank up on a domination screen that started with 10 coins in it and as the tourists play it would go up 12 15 coins 20 coins 25 coins there was a symbol on the third reel called break the bank and when it landed on the line you got all the coins in the bank well sometimes the bank would bank wouldn't bust and you get up 25 30 40 coins and uh, the tourists would just walk off the machine and one of these guys would get up go up to the machine bet one quarter at a time until they broke the bank, then they cash out and go grab a seat, let the tourists play. So I kept watching because I wanted to see what they thought was playable numbers. And uh, they didn't play anything. And it was always up in the 30s. 
usually in the high 30s and they would play it. If a tourist walked off from a 20 or 25, they wouldn't even get up. They just wait until some other one, some other tourist come along and play. So I figured that that was the play. That's how these machines worked. But I didn't have any money on me. I only had about five bucks on me. So I just took note of the machines and I headed up river, going through the joints, credit hustling. And it was a few hours later, I was in the Edgewater and they had pig machines in there. But now I'm up to $23. Uh, and uh, the lady walked off from a 65 on a pig. I jumped in the seat. And I was sitting there debating on what I was going to do, play the machine or not, you know, and I thought about it. And I said, I finally said, well, if I go broke playing this machine, I'll just start back over credit hustling. But it looked like those, it was pretty easy to break the bank from watching those other guys play. So I decided to play. I dropped a quarter in and I broke the bank on the very first spin of the very first pig I ever played. It put like $16 in my bankroll. So now I'm up. I got like $40. And I, I said, well, I'll keep credit hustling. But anytime I see one of these pigs at 50 or higher, I'll play it off and see if I can get through the window. Well, it, for the next two days, you know, the money kept building. I got up to $100, 120 140 150 200 playing these pigs. I spent two nights in the desert. And on the third day, I'm, I'm up. I got, I'm over $300 in bankroll now by the third day. And the, the dollar pigs, which I had avoided, a lady walked off from a 52 in the Edgewater. And I, and I debated for a while if I was going to play it. And I said, heck with it. I'll, if I go broke, I'll just, just start over. And I broke it. And I broke the bank on it in five or six spins. So, and it was that night I checked in. I started checking the hotel prices. Hotel rate at Harris was uh, $25. I checked in the hotel. And I, I never spent another night in the desert after that. Bob Dancer's story is also remarkable, if remarkable, in different ways. Bob grew up in California and went to UCLA, where he was a good student. Although the lessons Bob would use as a professional gambler came, as Bob says, from the School of Hard Knocks. He had gone broke playing backgammon, and even though he originally moved to Las Vegas to count cards, the results weren't impressive. But Bob had some skills that would be helpful when he found his edge. My father worked long hours and enjoyed considerable financial success. He and my mother were both quite thrifty. Her thriftiness came from fear. She lived on a farm during the Depression and was always afraid that another big depression would come and wipe us out. So she guarded against this by saving for a rainy day. My father's thriftiness was different. He would invest in real estate and other things in the expectation that the value of these assets would continue to grow. So both spent very little. A major reason I didn't drink, smoke, or do drugs was the cost of those things. I knew I needed a larger bankroll to play the bigger games where the big money was, so I did everything I could to save. Bob's frugal habits would make a personal finance blogger swoon. He cut the cord before cord cutting was a thing. Cable TV was too expensive and also not worth watching, in Bob's opinion. He also didn't see the point in getting a haircut more often than every two months, and he used toiletries taken from hotels. Because he understood the value of every penny, he also became an expert at extracting money from the casino marketing department, and there was no promotion too small to be targeted. Coupon hustling in the early, we're talking about 93, 94, were a significant part of my income. Lots of casinos had seven for five or 10 for five or three for two. 
on a single bet. And you play these, you cannot lose. Having a seven for five is like a 40% advantage. And you play enough of those and you are going to win. Uh, we were averaging over $200 a week for a year and a half, two years, just from coupon hustling. And you're supposed to only do one per person per day. And we, we rather abuse that rule when we could get away with it. For his first few years in Vegas, Bob was barely getting by. But then casinos did him a favor and sent him looking for a new game. When enough casinos restricted me from playing the blackjack promotion that I was feasting on, I went to Gambler's Book Club, and I looked around to find a gambling game that I could learn and beat. I had already tried live poker and determined that that wasn't going to be my game. Blackjack didn't seem to be my game, so I was trying to figure out what else. Howard Schwartz, who was the owner or maybe manager of the Gambler's Book Club, suggested I look at video poker. So I bought every book, started studying and finding promotions, and gradually became better at it. I used a basic strategy that wasn't very good. Stanford Wong had been very good at blackjack, so I got his professional video poker, and that was about eight, five jacks or better progressive. So I learned that strategy well, but tried to apply it to nine, six jacks or better, which is similar but not the same. But as they say, when you're only tool is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And eventually I meet people. Eventually I find software. Eventually I learn about promotions and I was on my way. Today, you can get a video poker app on your phone that will correct you when you make a mistake. But Bob started when the software offerings were primitive. He had to piece things together using various programs that each did part of the work. Stanford Wong had two pieces of video poker software. One, all it did was determine the return on a game. It's called Video Poker Analyzer, I think. You could plug it in and plug in nine, six jacks or better, and it would take about 15 hours, and it would tell you the game return 99.544%. That's all it did. That's a key number. You want to know how much a game is worth. And because a key part of gambling is you got to be the favorite in order to make money at it. The other software that I do not know that remember the name of, you could set it to any of several games and it would correct you. It wouldn't tell you what the game is worth, but it would either deal hands and you could play it and tell you when you're wrong, or you could enter in uh, two of clubs, five of spades, six of diamonds, and da 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 and it would tell you what the right play was. That was really key. You Having that, you could build up a strategy, and which is what I did. It's a tedious process. It's not automated at all, but I would keep playing the game until I would write out a strategy that I thought was good and then keep playing the game until I came across a hand that wasn't covered in my strategy, and then I would figure out why or look for similar hands and figure out what was meant that made this so special. And this is a inefficient way to do it. This is a tedious way to do it, but it was all I had. The advantage available in video poker is simple, but it's not obvious. Start with a game like 9-6, Jacks or Better, which returns 99.54% to the player when played perfectly. Then say you have a slot club that offers 0.3% cash back. Well, you're still below 100%. But now when the casino runs five times points days, 
the return of the machine plus the slot club exceeds 100%. From there, it's just an exercise to see how much money you can run through the machine by either playing fast or for high stakes or both. In 1995 or 96 at Bally's Casino, they had a 10-7 double bonus game. But this was the Bally's version, where Bally's is the game manufacturer, not the casino, where straight flushes paid 400 instead of 250 This made the game worth a slightly less than 100.6, and they had a slot club to go with it. This is pretty lucrative, but the problem was the smallest game they had was three coin $25 machines. That means $75 per play. This is much larger than I was used to, but the odds were very, very, very much in my favor. So as it happened on the first night, I played it, I hit a $12,000 set of aces, and I was off to the races that basically financed the run. I did have one $60,000 royal there. Uh, A month or so into that, somebody asked me if I ever ordered alcohol for room service. And I said, no, I, I don't drink. There's no, I have no real need for alcohol. They go, you're not understanding. You play that much, and they are willing to give you lots of comps. And unopened bottles of alcohol are very marketable. So that kind of put a light on in my head. Bob started ordering top-shelf alcohol at Bally's, and not a small amount. He ordered so much booze, he had to carry it out in suitcases. Then he would resell it to his friends. He's not exactly sure how much alcohol he resold, but he thinks it might have been anywhere from 10000 to 30000 Because Bob didn't drink, Bally's eventually caught on and they cut off his comps. The Bally's liquor scheme may have been over, but Bob and his then-wife Shirley did versions of the same thing at other casinos by reselling things like free rooms and show tickets. Bob has lots of stories like this where he would find a play that was already good and then look for ways to make it even sweeter. One casino offered a bingo card promotion that was vulnerable to apathetic employees. It had uh, 19 open squares to be checked off. Some were free and it was worth $200. So the squares were worth a little over $10 a piece. And you got it checked when you got a natural four of a kind. So we were playing 10-7 double bonus, which is a little over 100%. They had a slot club of 0.3, which made it a decent game off the top. And you get about two to three of these $10 bingo stripes per hour. So this made it worth maybe $40, $50 an hour. This was 1995. And it was a dollar game, which was a good game. But it turned out I started tipping a dollar to the slot attendants and they would give me an extra square or two. And sometimes I was going, you know, I've played 45 minutes and I haven't hit one. Uh, Don't you think I deserve a bingo? And I would hand them my card with a um, dollar token uh, and they would go, yeah, I think you deserve one. So they would take it and stamp it. And so sometimes we would go to dinner, comped of course, and before dinner would give a card that was basically empty with a five or ten dollar bill to one of the attendants we worked with and said we'd like to pick this up after dinner 
And they said, sure. And so we'd come back and there would be eight or 10 or 12 bingo spots marked. So 10 things marked were like worth $100. And it would cost us five or $10. They ran it for a while, decided to stop it. And then they brought it back. And by this time, all the, all the slot personnel knew how to play the game. And we just exploited it mercilessly. Bob says he wouldn't really get involved in these hijinks today. He's more well-known now, and the casinos only barely tolerate his action, so taking shortcuts would probably get him thrown out. But also, he's just not as hungry as when he first started. Part of it was hunger. I didn't know that I would be able to survive in Vegas. There's always a question that I could go broke. I had gone broke years before playing backgammon, and it was at least possible that I could do it again. And so it was the fear of survival that was driving me. Uh, Today, I have no fear of survival on that. Uh, The stakes I play, there's no way I can go broke. I could run out of games to play if casinos tighten up sufficiently, but there's no way I can go broke. When Bob moved up in stakes, he got invited to special weekends where the casino would give out even more money to VIPs. He was playing with an edge, but the casino treated him like one of their favorite losers. And they weren't completely to blame for making that mistake. Back in the day, it was possible to fake a net loss on the player tracking system by taking your player's card out of the machine midway through hands where you might hit a large payout. That was one way casinos were mistaking winners for losers. You would have promotions where they would invite uh, 400 players and give away $400,000 and you earn tickets by playing a game where the players had a, like a 0.3% advantage off the top, including the slot club, and be giving them free room and free meals and free beverages all um, in addition to that and a nice gift for the weekend. And to be sure, they were making money on it because there were enough slot players invited and not everybody played really well. And even the players who were decent at video poker, often would want to put a bet on the Lakers or whatever, or play craps too, and so play games where the house had an advantage. So the casinos were making enough money, but the players with the discipline who knew what they were doing, this was a goldmine. Mickey got his start by watching the other hustlers on the piggy banking machines, but he can do his own analysis. He says that being able to do the work means that you can blaze your own trail, and you're not reliant on anyone else. Reverse engineering slot machine payouts can be done with some algebra and statistics on symbol frequencies. I was curious if Mickey learned this math in school, but he said he's never taken an algebra class in his life. And I wanted to learn gambling math, so I went. I was hitting the libraries. I was drifting around the country. I hit the libraries trying to figure it out reading these math books. And it just wasn't happening because I couldn't figure out the code language. All those fancy equations, I had no idea what they meant. I just, I didn't know all those commas and exclamations and brackets and all this stuff. I had no clue what it meant. But I was reading a lot of gambling books in the library systems back in those days. And there was one book by John Scarney. It was called Scarney's Guide to Modern Poker. And chapter 10 was uh, Scarney's, uh, or see, chapter 10 was... um, Let's see, the mathematics of poker. Now, the difference difference between Scarney and, and the other math guys I was trying to learn from was Scarney wrote the equations out in longhand. You know, like uh, in a poker deck, you know, like uh, what's uh, what's your chances of picking up a pair of 
aces at Texas Hold'em. Well, there's six or four aces in the deck, so the it's four times three divided by two times one equals uh, six combinations. How many combinations in a deck? Fifty-two times fifty-one divided by two times one equals thirteen twenty-six. So you divide that number by the six combinations it makes aces, and you pick up aces every two hundred twenty-one hands. Okay, now he wrote all that stuff out in longhand, so I was able to understand it and. I just ran that clinic over to the copying machine, and I just started practicing doing a, uh, equations of five-card poker hands, and then on the draws because that was in the early '90s. I was playing a lot of poker then, and I wanted to know the odds of hitting all these draws. I learned poker math that way, and when I later, it would be about five years later, I moved into uh, machine play and video poker, and that poker math that I learned came in very handy. When I moved into、uh, video poker, Mickey takes his knowledge of gambling math, learned from John Scarney and the public library system, and combines it with an understanding of how slot machines work to find his edges. Well, the first thing I look for is progressive meters. Is there any progressive meters on it? If there are progressive meters on it, how fast are they running? In other words, what percentage of the、uh, the wager is going into those meters? Now, if you find it running a half percent, like putting fifty cents per one hundred wagered, or one dollar per one hundred wagered, on a ninety percent game overall, you know that's pretty much guaranteed.、Uh, never go positive. Number will never get big enough to go positive. It'll hit long before it gets to a positive number. But if you find a four percent meter there, that changes everything. That's huge. That game has a chance to go positive before the jackpot hits, or whatever happens, whether it's a bonus or. Whether it's a top line jackpot, a medium range jackpot. Not all jackpots are top line, you know, with long odds like hundred thousand, five hundred thousand.、Um, a, a lot of jackpots got frequencies like fifteen hundred, or seven hundred, or three hundred, or thirteen hundred. And、um, and with modern equipment, where you're playing, you got a frequency say thirteen hundred, but it's playing twenty games a minute. You know, you're not, you know, you're not talking about a lot of time to hit that jackpot. So I look for progressive meters, and also look for banking features. Something being accumulated on a kino game. One kino game、uh, that I used to play—it's kind of an old dead play now. When you would hit seven out of ten, it would fill in an icon, one of five icons. And when you got all five icons filled in, you got the progressive meter. Well, you know, hitting a seven out of ten is a low frequency、uh, or、uh, a pretty short frequency. It's only like six twenty-one. But you have to hit five of them to get to progressive. Well, the trick to that is you don't play when it's five away. You look, you go through, you punch the machines up, you look more, more and more that's only one away or two away. And how much money is it? And is it an advantage point?、Um, so, so something being banked. One of the old the Odyssey games on, on the Odyssey machines was a game called、uh, Buccaneer Gold. On it, you had to bank five daggers and a log to get a bonus.、Uh, So the trick was you only played when you found three or four daggers already in the log. And when you're walking by the machine, you punch it up and see how many daggers are in the log. A lot of tourists will just get up and leave it. Three or four daggers in the log. They run out of credits and leave, or they just don't care, or they got something they have to do, but they just get up and leave it. And then you know the knowledgeable machine pro, the guy that's looking to make the money, will only play those advantages that he finds. But a lot, a, a lot of these games are not that hard to figure out. It's pretty easy. Before I interviewed Mickey, he sent me a list of about 15 advantage slots he played in the 90s. These games had names like 
Lady of Fortune, Buccaneer Gold, and Diamond Thief. He also included notes on how to beat every game. There were details on how many spins were needed to collect some bonus feature, and then how many bonus features were needed to make the game profitable. The opening of a number of large casinos in the 90s, combined with the proliferation of advantage slots, meant that he had lots of games to play. Back in those days, you were almost like a kid in a candy store. There was just so much stuff to play. You know, between the, the advantage video poker, working huge edges that you don't see today, 4 and 5% edges in video poker, and, um, and then all the machine plays. Uh, or the slot plays, which are 20 and 30% edges, short-term plays uh, in, on, on the slot plays. But yeah, it was like a kid in a candy store in those days. But the heyday in beatable slot machines also brought on competition. This is a true story. You know that, that tram or shuttle that used to run between uh, Treasure Island and Mirage? You know, and that both, both casinos had plays, you know. Well, I would get on the shuttle. And there would be other hustlers on the show. They're making a casino change, just like me. They're we're, saying we're switching from uh, uh, Mirage uh, uh, to Treasure Island. When the shuttle would pull up to Treasure Island, we all hit the doors and all fast walked into the casinos because we wanted to be the first ones in the machines to get the plays. There were so many hustlers on the strip that you, even though they had a lot of money, a lot of, uh, of the uh, advantage slots, there were so many guys working them. That, you know, you couldn't get a play, you know, I, I traveled and I, I, I would find markets where I was the only one. You know, I wouldn't sit in a dead market where there's too much competition. I'd go someplace else. You know, I, I can remember times like one time in uh, in the MGM, you know, they, they loaded up about 40 hustlers and marched them all out the door on one day. You know, that's how many slot hustlers were in MGM. There are a lot of different types of beatable slots. From games where the edge will only be there for a few spins, to machines where the edge will exist until some jackpot hits. Because there are so many different kinds of plays, there's also a range of machine pros. They ran the gamut from the, the excellent, the top of the line, the well-bankrolled, highly knowledgeable that worked all everything, the, the uh, vanish slots, the video poker, the live poker, poker tournaments, uh, blackjack tournaments, they worked everything. And, well, bankrolled and did real well. To the real bottom feeders that played, they could only, they had to hustle up. Every day they started out hustling up a couple of dollars, uh, uh, hustling credits off the machines. Then they'd have to play a nickel bingo, a nickel vacation, something, something with a low rolling play, it was cheap. Uh, you know, and they never had much money, $15, $20, a lot of money to them. So I was somewhere in between, you know, I was, uh, I was able to, I played, um, I played uh, the advantage slots. I, I played uh, video poker. Played uh, the 10, 20, 20, 40 games. Uh, hold them. Uh, uh, I played some poker tournaments, not many. Uh, so, you know, and I, and I always, uh, I lived in a hotel, so I always had a roof over my head. I wasn't scuffling, but I wasn't the richest hustler out there either. Bob Dancer was determined to be one of the well-bankrolled video poker pros. And by the mid-90s, he was on his way. Your bankroll never grows steadily. Gambling always has wins and losses. The big wins, though, started happening about 95 at casinos like the Mirage, Treasure Island, Bally's, um, Caesar's Palace. These casinos had Jacks are Better, which is a 99.5% game, and a 0.67 slot club, which means you 
players had the advantage off the top and they would throw huge promotions at the players. And so I was started doing very well from being a, you know, making a thousand dollars a month. You know, I was making 10,000 a month within a few years, still ups and downs, still losing months, never a losing year during that period, but definitely losing months. And the casinos were giving away the money and competing with each other to see who could give away the most. But Bob's results also flowed from his willingness to take risks. When he was building his bankroll, he took shots. He sometimes overplayed his bankroll with the understanding he might end up losing and have to build back up. I first played at the MGM a little after Thanksgiving in 1999. They sent a postcard in the mail for double points for people who'd never had slot club cards before. I went in and found they had $25.96 jacks, which was a lot of money. A $25 game means you play $125 at a hand. But the slot club was such the double points was just too good to pass up. So I played that heavily and hit a $100,000 royal, which was fortunate. Not everyone is going to be comfortable playing a game where the variance has the potential to hit you in the side of the head. In fact, Bob's wife at that time, Shirley, was not a risk taker, and she was his playing partner. He taught her the strategies, and they played together. Oh, I had nowhere near enough bankroll to play that promotion. It was definitely gambling. Uh, we had a big edge, and Shirley and I decided that if we lost a certain amount, I think the amount was $40,000, that we would just bail on the promotion. And fortunately, we hit a... Uh, $100,000 Royal Flush when we were only down like 15000 And so that set us up pretty good. And so we kept going. Right after the 100000 Royal Flush, of course, Shirley wanted to quit. Uh, cash our winnings. We've broken the bank. Uh, let's quit. And I'm going, it's still a great promotion. Uh, don't you think it'd be good to have $200,000 Royal Flushes? She goes, yeah, that would be great. I was going, well, you can't have the second one if you quit right after the first. So we ended up losing a bit afterwards, but we still ended up quite a bit ahead over that promotion. A year later, they st things started getting much, much looser there, and we started winning way, way, way more. And near the end at the MGM Grand, it was clear that changes were have to be made. They were giving away the store. The the play that we were playing on, if they let us go unchecked, we could between us we could make four hundred thousand dollars a year indefinitely for as long as they let it go. So either they were gonna change the promotion or remove our welcome or both. Whatever the video poker equivalent of being touched by the hand of God is, it happened to Bob Dancer for six months starting in September of two thousand. Everything was clicking. He was pulling his player's card on potentially big hands, so even though he was winning, the MGM thought he was a net loser. He found a machine that was paying slot points at a much higher rate than usual. He and his wife spent 40 nights in a villa in the MGM mansion, which is the ultra-luxury part of the hotel reserved for the highest rollers. They won two cars. And the pinnacle was a single night where they first attended the ESPN ESPYs as guests of the MGM, and later that night hit two royal flushes, totaling half a million dollars. 
The MGM was a life-changing experience for me, and it didn't have to turn out that way. We didn't have to hit a hundred dollar uh, royal for four hundred thousand. We didn't have to be overroyaled. It just happened that we took a chance where the odds were very much in our favor, and we were fortunate along the way. So it's a combination of a lucrative promotion and good luck. Is it's a good time to get lucky. It was never though one promotion. It was lots and lots and lots of promotions. We got American Airlines miles for uh, in addition to our points. We got invitations to special events every month where just showing up had an average win of about $2,000 on average. We had all the, the food and drink we could keep down. We got to stay in a place called The Mansion, which is the most luxurious hotel that I've ever been in. It was um, great promotions. And sometimes after a while, they took off the airline miles, but it was still really great. The slot marketing person didn't have a clue as to math. She was arithmetically challenged and we took advantage of it. Do I wish it lasted forever? Yes, sort of, but nothing lasts forever. And all promotions end. Eventually, you're going to get kicked out. If you start winning at a casino, you're going to end up getting kicked out. That's just a fact of life. The ridiculous run came to an end when the MGM pulled back the welcome mat. Bob was barred. He'd also been playing a lot at the Venetian, and they similarly asked him to please not come back. I was still very welcome at downtown at the Golden Nugget, and for a while at the other MGM Mirage properties, such as uh, the Mirage. The Bellagio never really welcomed local, competent video poker players, but Treasure Island still belonged to MGM at that point, and I could play there, and Mandalay Bay had some good games. So there were plenty of opportunities. They were not on the $800 an hour range, but they were still very, very good. And so so now I was down to making only $200,000 a year. I was not crying over that. A decent amount of the return in video poker comes from the rare royal flushes. Since profitability is reliant on these rare events, the game requires a steadfast trust in the numbers. Trusting the numbers comes from a lot of experience. It comes from a lot of uh, understanding of the math behind it. But it also entails a willingness to take some risk. Even if you trust the numbers but are not willing to take risk, you, um, you're you not going to succeed at this. In my million-dollar run at the MGM, I certainly never had an, an idea that it would end up in a million dollars. I could have gone broke. I was betting that uh, the, the games were definitely in my favor. There was no doubt about that. But there are losing streaks. Every gambler experiences losing streaks. It happened that my biggest winning streak of my life and casino mistakes happen simultaneously. And so the risks paid off. So much of the million dollar run was good timing on my part, which was fortunately accidental in a fortunate kind of a way. So I was on the right side of variance there. But most of my understanding of risk comes from school of hard knocks, because definitely there have been other times when it's gone the other way. Mickey may have been a kid in a candy store in the late 90s, but by 2007, the plays were drying up. 
The machines he'd been living on were disappearing from the casino floor. That left him mostly playing video poker while he checked out other markets around the country. On his way back from Deadwood, he made a fortuitous stop in Montana. When I got to Montana in 2007, I seen all these that you don't see in the other big markets like around the country as uh, video Kino progressives. Well, I'm looking at them. I didn't know Kino math. And I'm looking at them and I'm testing the meters and meters are always an indication whether a game will go positive. You find something with a three or four percent meter on it and it's a strong indication that this game can go positive. And so, but it had been years before that, I had picked up a John Scarney book that had a uh, chapter on Kino Man. And it was just two or three pages. So I ran that by the copying machine and I, I carried that around for years and never used it until I got to Montana. And so I just went straight, pulled that uh, little clinic out and studied it. And after learning enough, I went back and analyzed these games and I found exploitable games. Anyone with a bar license can have up to 20 machines. So I walked around downtown going through the bars and looking at all the machines. And they're all pretty much the same machines in every casino. They all have these same games. I go, well, I think I'll hang around and play this game. It was a progressive game. Individual progressive, play it off, make a little money, and then go on back down in Nevada. Well, that was the plan. And then while I was there, and then you got the whole state, and the machines are the same across the whole state. So I had the whole state to sweep through. So I'm sweeping out the whole state. When I'm doing that, they start installing some new games. I'll be damned if there wasn't a couple of exploitable games they put in. And it, and it was easy. I mean, just as easy as he got. And there's no competition. I'm by myself. I'm the pioneer of the Montana machine pros. I'm the very first one. They had never seen a machine pro before in their life. This is a gravy train and I'm not leaving. Uh, but on the top, the top end of what you can make, um, you weren't going to become a millionaire in Montana back, back in 2007. It was worth about 50,000 a year, but it was the easiest 50,000 a year you ever made. It's just like a few hours a day, three, four days a week to make the money. And the rent was cheap. Everything's cheap. And I just never left. I didn't leave the state for 10 years. Mickey dealt with the usual challenges to growing a bankroll. And he also dealt with challenges that were uniquely his. I think it took me like three or four times to get through a $20,000 bankroll. I get to 20000 and I'd find a way to knock it back down to 5000 I think it was like three or four times before I got through the window. Uh, sometimes, I, you know, I overplayed my bankroll. I remember overplaying it on a $5 video poker play once. But a lot, most of the time, I was just getting lazy and sloppy and wouldn't work. And uh, I had a big drinking habit, and I would I would hole up in some flea bag hotel next to a bar, and I was just drinking and uh, chasing the girls and living a good life. And then one day I wake up six over and sorry, and only have four or five grand left in my name. I go, damn, I got to go back to work, you know. So then I would quit drinking and go back to work. Yeah, I was a heavy drinker for a lot of years, but I had it compartmentalized. I didn't gamble and drink at the same time. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just, if, if, if booze touched my, if I was on a machine play and booze touched my lips, I, I would just quit right on the spot and go to the bar. I wanted to sit at the bar. I wanted to run my mouth, talk with the other drunks and have a good time. I didn't want to work, you know, uh, I wanted to be off. And, you know, the, to me, machines were work. And the last thing I wanted to do when I was drinking was work. So I just didn't work and drink at the same time. I 
So I'm hard-headed, you know, I didn't quit. I was 63 before I quit. I, I mainly quit because I'm, I wanted to go out of state. A lot of driving involved and this kind of stuff, you know. And I used to live downtown Great Falls. I lived next to a bar, get drunk with a pig, just stumble right next door. And, I, you know, I'm not going to get arrested for drunk driving. But on the road, I said, well, I got to, you know, I got to clean it up. And uh, so on. And I was getting tired of it anyway. And and then the, the particular bar involved, I got pissed off at them because I was the biggest customer in the bar. And and uh, they threw me out one night. So I go, I'll show them assholes. I'll just quit drinking. They'll go broke. And sure enough, within a year, the lady sold the bar. Mickey told me that he doesn't do well sitting at home with nothing to do. He had a health scare last year, but he already has plans to get back out and start playing again. I had a heart attack that year. I survived it. They put a couple of stints in and, um, and you know, and, and I was in pretty bad health for about three, four months. Uh, I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't figure I had long to live. And, uh, but, uh, after about four months, I started to snap out of it. I got a lot better and, um, and I'm feeling good and I'm a plotter, you know, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I'm plotting on this stuff. Now, I can't walk like I used to. And when you're, when you're working big casinos, you're walking miles and miles a day, you know. And uh, after this heart attack, and especially my age, I'm 67 now. I can't walk those 10 miles a day like I used to. So I, I bought a van here uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I I'm, I'm got it rigged out. I bought a power chair, and I don't really use it here. I don't need it here in Montana. But for the big hotel casinos, I, I tried it twice over once at Coeur d'Alene Casino over in Idaho, big parking lot, big casino, big hotel, running around there in a power chair, and it just speeded things way up, and I can make a lot of laps around the machines every day. Bob is also still out playing, even if he doesn't play as much as he once did. The truth is I make more mistakes now than I made 20 years ago, and I'm not as mentally sharp as I was when I was, say, 53. But um, I still have written the books. I still have teaching the classes, and so I'm a feared opponent or respected opponent, to say the least. So I suspect casinos think I'm more of a magician at video poker than I actually am. They think even a game that's only 99.4, somehow I can turn that into a game where I have a big advantage. And there's nothing I can do with the laws of mathematics, but with what I can do, I do do. One thing making it easier for Bob to slow down is that he has other hobbies and interests. He's involved in competitive storytelling and an improv group. He's also been writing about and teaching video poker for 25 years now, which he loves. Teaching is one of the joys of my life. I like being on stage. I like sharing the knowledge I have. I like watching other people, the light come on. Like, oh, now I understand. Uh, people come up to me and tell me that they're that in the past they would lose all the money in the casinos and between my classes and my writings, now they're either a winning player or a break-even player, and they're really, really grateful for it. Bob also co-hosts the Gambling with an Edge podcast with Richard Munchkin. They've interviewed hundreds of advantage gamblers, including people with incredible resumes like Ed Thorpe, Bill Benter, and Blair Hull. Sometimes some of my favorite guests are not really gambling-related. For example, uh, James Holtzauer, who was the Jeopardy! champion. Also, 
was into sports betting, so that was enough of a hook that he agreed to come on. And I had been on Jeopardy years ago and was a big fan of the show and was a, a big fan of James Holtower. And he was sitting across the table like four feet away. And that was truly thrilling to me. He said he had declined going on Good Morning America, but would come on to Gambling with an Edge, which kind of made my year. So I was just sitting there as a starstruck fan. This episode is called Two Hustlers, which I'll briefly explain. Mickey could be called any of a machine pro or a slot vulture or a slot hustler. However, Bob wouldn't really refer to himself as a hustler. He would say that he's a professional video poker player. But hustle has multiple meanings, and one of them is the art form that is taking an advantage and combining it with a scheme to get the money. Bob made a career hustling casinos out of their money. He had an edge, but he was able to convince casinos to enthusiastically invite him back. And they rolled out the red carpet so he could win even more. This was the life I wanted. Very frequently in the late 90s, where they would have casino promotions, so the game would already be good, and yet they'd be throwing another $400,000 at the players over a weekend. And, uh, you know, the other competent players, you know, we'd look at each other and go, just think, we could be working. Uh, it's like we just couldn't believe that how if you had a few skills and were willing to apply it, that the casinos were just throwing money at the players. Now, they don't throw money at the players quite so much these days, but they're still out there throwing it. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Mickey Krim and Bob Dancer. Because this episode couldn't possibly cover their entire careers, I'll post some resources in case you want to hear more. Mickey has appeared on Gambling with an Edge a number of times, and he has lots of stories not contained in this episode. You can also follow him on Twitter. Bob has written a number of books, will resume teaching video poker classes once COVID-19 recedes, and has also appeared on nearly 500 episodes of Gambling with an Edge. Look out for the next episode of Risk of Ruin, where we'll meet people who play the credit card points game. People are like, they'll ask you like, hey, is this legal? And you're like, yeah, I'm getting a credit card from the bank using my real name, my address, my income. I'm spending money on that card. I'm earning points. I'm using those points to travel just because I got a $500 flight for $5 doesn't mean I'm doing anything illegal.